Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2 as we continue on in our study through this great gospel, this orderly account from Luke of the life of Christ. You know, we all love birth announcements. Don't you love birth announcements? You know, we love to get those. And you know, the, the first time that we get to see their names or her, his or her name, their sex and, you know, their height and their weight, their length and all of those types of things. And we rejoice with the parents as they welcome their child into the world. And that's just a, it is a beautiful joy. And as we, as we opened up the chapter two of Luke's gospel last week, by reading, considering the birth of Christ, the Father's plan of redemption, we see, began before the foundation of the world. It was promised immediately after the fall. It was prophesied by the prophets and anticipated by all faithful Jews and children of God. It finally became a reality, as we read last week with the birth of Christ. In this passage, we saw the Father's sovereignty, And his love on full display, as well as the son of Jesus, the son of God, as he humbly, uh, humbly, uh, obediently follows the father's plan in becoming flesh. Now this week, as we turn again back to chapter 2, and we consider verses 8 through 14, Luke records the angelic announcement of the birth of Jesus to the shepherds working in the fields nearby. This announcement at first brings fear, but as we're going to read, it turns to joy as the next step in redemption moves forward as the shepherds enter stage right. Let's read Luke chapter 2, 8 through 14. I want to always encourage you to bring your Bibles. This here will be part on the screen, but read with me if you could silently. Luke writes, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born in this day the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, even will, uh, for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly... It was filled with the angels, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Father, as we come to this passage, open up our minds, uh, limit the distractions, the in and outs, the things that just kind of take us away, the daydreaming and all these other things that, uh, you know, compete for our mind and for our ability to consider Lord, let us see this time as sacred, uh, not because I'm standing here in this pulpit, but because we have our Bibles open, the word of God revealed to us. And Father, we are to be held accountable for what we read and what we receive and what we believe. And let us receive it with joy this morning. And not only that, may we respond to the Holy Spirit's work. We thank you for this opportunity. In your name, amen. As we come to this familiar scene of the angels appearing before the shepherds, 
we can deduce that contrary to some Christmas carols and nativity plays, Jesus was neither silent when he was born, nor were the angels singing but uh, to the shepherds. However, Luke is writing that you and I may have certainty about certain areas of Christ's life. And so if that, what we're going to see as we read this is that you and I recognize through Luke's writing here is that it is a real event that happened on a real day in history. It took place in a real village on earth and was witnessed by real people. We can have certainty about that. In Luke's gospel, we recognize that he has a formula in chapters one and two when it comes to the birth announcements of both John the Baptist and Jesus. One, we see an appearance of an angel. We see the reaction of, of, of fear and troubled by those who hear the announcement. He, then we see the announcement of a promised son, the announcement of a birth. And then we see a sign of confirmation, something that will prove that what the angel said, what he promised, will become a reality. And this a birth announcement here to the shepherds follows the same pattern as we read at first, one angel, most likely Gabriel, appears in verse 10 and receives the same reaction of the other two times, fear or trembling or troubledness. Now, I've never seen an angel myself, at least not knowingly, yet it seems that in their incarnate form, they can be very terrifying. As you read throughout scripture, almost every response to the appearance of an angel is fear. Many times they are mistaken for Yahweh, for God himself, but they quickly dispel those thoughts and they point out that their mission is to proclaim a message from God, to give direction or declare a warning. The writer of Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 does instruct us to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Yet in this case, the shepherds are startled by the sudden appearance of this angel in the night as they go about their work of guarding the sheep. Now, when Luke writes, and as you go back to your scripture there, when Luke writes that the glory of the Lord shone around them, you and I need to understand that this is describing more than just a bright light in the midst of the dark night sky. But it's the very presence of Yahweh. You might recall from our series on Exodus of how Moses' face reflected the glory of God. In Exodus 34, we read that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the tablets, with the Ten Commandments, the testimony in his hand, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. He was in the very presence of God. Aaron and all the people saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face, of Moses' face, it says, shone, shone. And they were afraid to come near. And you might recall he had to put on a veil on his face. In Matthew 17, 2, we read that when Jesus was transfigured before the three disciples, that Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. The very presence of God is demonstrated by very bright light. In Revelation chapter 21, the apostle John describes the new heaven and new earth that one day that we will be citizens of. It says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. But he also goes on and tells us that the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. 
What is interesting about this angelic birth is not only the presence of God, but that it was not only given to the religion, it was not given, excuse me, to the religious or political leaders of that time. It was not uh, given in the temple in Jerusalem, the place of power and prestige. But it was given to lowly shepherds in a field near a very small village. Again, this is part of the father's plan of redemption. Jesus is born into a humble family. He's born in a humble fashion and he's introduced to the world for the very first time to a group of insignificant men. Now, when I say that, I'm not trying to disparage them or their vocation or occupation. But pointing out in the ancient worldview, the shepherds were low on the social and economic totem pole. Many times it was done as a part-time job or those who were day laborers and who could not find work. And, but what we see here is this is going to be consistent with Luke's account as he points out the importance of the lowly and the social outcast in God's kingdom in this gospel. This is part of the Father's uh, method of operation, so to speak. The angels now proclaim that the promised son of David, the Messiah, has been born. And he gives them a sign of confirmation for as he describes how they will find him. You'll see that. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and he's lying in a manger. Now, at first thought, that seems like an odd sign of confirmation, isn't it? But in reality, it would pinpoint how they were to identify this child, this baby. And most likely, there were not too many children born that night in the small village of Bethlehem, especially any that were sleeping in the feeding trough of an animal. But that would be the sign that they were in the right place. Now, Luke goes on then to describe that this proclamation was followed by a multitude of heavenly hosts that were praising God. Now, if one angel led to fear, I wonder what 10,000 of them did to the people, to the poor shepherds. Again, though it doesn't really matter, Luke writes that they were praising God, not necessarily singing. And their praise was simple. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among whom those God, or among those with whom he is pleased. And with those words, the shepherd's fear is turned into rejoicing as they obey the voice of the angel and they seek out the baby. The promised son becomes a reality that will turn fear into joy. Now, what I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning is to move to understanding the spiritual truths that are captured in this passage, not just some simple observations that we can call from it as we read through it quickly. But what does this mean? What are we to understand as we consider this birth announcement and how it turns fear into joy? So with me, as your Bibles are open, Luke chapter 2, look back with me at verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Now, for the most part, birth announcements in general are good news that bring great joy to family and friends of the parents. But this birth announcement is going to be unique. It's a special one. It's more than just, now listen to this, it's more than just good information that people celebrate. We're not just looking at good information, but what this proclamation is doing is it's something special. Something special will come because of the birth of this child. 
So let's consider, consider three ways that this is great news or good news that turns fear into joy. They are not on the screen, but if you'd like to take notes, I know many people do. I put it in three considerations, three spiritual truths that we should find from this passage. Why is this good news? How does it turn joy or fear into joy? The first consideration is that the birth announcement is good, is good news because of who the child is. Who the child is. Look at verse 11. For unto you, <clears throat> excuse me, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, the angel here announces not the name of the child. That's going to come eight days later, as we see next week in our passage. But rather, the purpose and the identification of who he is is what the announcement is. They're telling us who this child is. Who is his identity? You see, this little child born in Bethlehem is the Savior. And this points to his purpose in redeeming the children of God. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel tells Joseph in Matthew's account that you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus himself told his disciples in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that the Son of Man comes to seek and to save the lost. And in Matthew 20, 28, Jesus proclaimed that the Son of Man comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the reason why this can turn fear into joy is because of who the child is. Now, this is good news because you and I, the world needs a Savior. Amen? We need to understand that. We do not need a life coach. We do not need a life motivator. We do not need more esteem. We don't need someone to come in and organize our closets. Well, maybe some of us do, but for the most part, that is not the world needs. We don't need someone to point our finger at. We don't need someone who can help us deny our guilt or teach us how to hide our shame. What you and I need, what our neighbors need, what our family needs is that we need a Savior to rescue us from the wrath of God and earn our righteousness so that we may become the children of God. The Bible informs us that you and I are in desperate need of a Savior. This whole world, all of humanity the Apostle Paul describes the whole human race when he writes to the church located in Rome. He says, all of humanity is filled with all manners of unrighteousness and evil, covetousness and malice. He goes on to describe us as full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents. They are foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. This is all of humanity. Those who bear the image of God, this is what we are filled with. He goes on to declare, if you look on, this, on the monitor in Romans 3, he says, as none is righteous, here's the indictment, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
And he goes on to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now he adds that the wages or the penalty of that sinful condition is death. Because of this, Paul warns that those who practice such things deserve to die and that the wages of sin is death. You and I need a Savior. Take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2 if you would. This passage is probably one you already have underlined because I've asked you to do so or highlight it, to memorize it, to Instagram it, to Twitter it, whatever you want to do, do it. Because in here we see what this baby came to do and why he has turned fear into joy because he is the Savior. Colossians chapter 2, I hope you're there. Look at verse 13. If you don't, just write it down and you can look at it later. We read of the work of this child, this Savior. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Well, who is that? Well, that was all of humanity in Romans 1. That's you and I. From birth, he says, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. It says that this, he set aside what that record of debt and all the legal requirements of our sin. And he's nailed it to the cross. It is finished, we sung earlier. That was a term of reconciliation. It's an accounting term that says paid in full. Verse 15, not only did all that, but he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and they put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. The birth of Christ is good news because he comes to complete the Father's plan of redemption. You know and I no longer have to fear because we have a Savior. And what was that? You know, I don't know if this is true. This is, by the way, not the Holy Spirit. This is just my own mind working. It's not in my notes. But anyone remember the, the, the old TV show cartoon, Underdog? Underdog, underdog. How does it go? Speed of lightning, roar of thunder. All for all and one for under. Underdog, never fear. Cut, cut this out of the, the tape too, would you please? This won't be on mine. You have to be here to get all the riches of this pulpit. But yeah, never fear. Why? Because we have a Savior. He says that today is the day of salvation. So if you're here today, you are in need of a Savior. It does not come in your genes. It is not something that's given to you in a birth basket when you're born. It is not something that's gifted to you except through Jesus Christ. So we have a Savior. Fear turned into joy. I do not have to stand before a vengeful God because we have been made right with God. Number two, in there we see in that verse, again, so so this is the first consideration of who the child is. So the second part of that, who the child is, is it says that he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. That's the Greek word for Messiah, the Jewish word. Now this points to his uh, humanity and his fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. Faithful Israelites Israelites have been praying and anticipating the arrival of Yahweh's promised Messiah for centuries. The Messiah would be the future Jewish king that comes from the line of David. He's expected to save the Jewish nation, deliver them from their bondage. And he was anointed to rule the Jewish people when he ushers into the kingdom of God. The angel proclaims the good news that their long-awaited wait is finally 
over. He is here. This baby, this child is the Messiah. The anointed one of God has arrived. In Matthew 3, 2, Jesus begins his, his earthly ministry by preaching these words, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He went on to teach about the nature of his kingdom, how one could enter, <clears throat> excuse me, enter into that kingdom and the rewards waiting for those who enter in. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. They were to look no further than the manger in Bethlehem, for there they would find the promised Messiah, the Christ, in a feeding trough, this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Not only is he the savior of the world, not only is he the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but he's also the Lord. He's also the Lord. And this points to his identity as the son of God. The apostle Paul, or Peter, excuse me, writes to the, no, it was Paul, I've got it wrong in my notes. The apostle Paul writes to the church of Colossae concerning Jesus. He says, for by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. He created all things that were visible and invisible, whether they are thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. Every tongue will confess. That was our call to worship. Earlier in our scripture reading, we saw that as Landon read that Jesus Christ, Lord. Those phrases come together to declare who he is. Peter himself would declare that Jesus was the son of the living God. Even the Roman centurion, listen to this. Even the Roman centurion who was charged with watching over Jesus when he was crucified. Do you remember what he exclaimed when Jesus died? Truly, this man was the son of God. What a great testimony. Is that your testimony this morning? All of scripture points out that Jesus was truly man, but also truly God. And it's in this way that he was able to endure the wrath of God. His resurrection is evidence that he was God, the second person of the Trinity. Now I say that the reason, the importance, why this is good news and turns to joy is because the plan of redemption could not be accomplished without the incarnation with God becoming flesh. It is this declaration that Jesus is Lord that we read of in our scripture reading earlier. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, including those who have rejected him, those who tried to kill him, and even today, those who deny his very existence, his ministry, and his work. For every tongue will confess so what we see here, the first truth that you and I see in these small verses very quickly is we see who Christ is, who Jesus is, this baby. He is the savior of the world. He is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, and he's also the Lord, the son of God. The second consideration is why is this good news? It's found in verse 14. Look with me there. Glory to God in the highest the angels say, and on earth, peace. Now, the angelic army praises God because peace is brought to an earth that is marked with corruption due to the sinful rebellion of humanity against its creator. Scripture tells us that even the creation groans waiting for that final redemption 
when Christ returns. The prophet Isaiah, as you look here on the screen, prophesied centuries earlier, Isaiah chapter 9, 6 through 7. He prophesied, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now this peace, you and I must understand, means more than just the quieting of political, national, social, and religious unrest. Now this peace is found in Jesus' authority, the scripture tells us, to forgive sins, to heal, to bring reconciliation. Zechariah, as you may recall from Luke chapter 1, when he was giving praise to God because of his son, John the Baptist, says this, And you, child, speaking of John the Baptist, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people, speaking of Jesus, to the people for the forgiveness of sin because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of, anyone want to guess the word? Peace. This is why this is so important of this, this birth announcement is the good news of peace. Pastor John Piper exclaims that peace is to spread not through national dominance, not through cultural appropriation, not through some type of social uh, compromise, but peace is spread everywhere that this child is humbly received. Just as the kingdom of God grows each and every moment of the day, not through land conquests, not through territories, but through the spreading as each heart, excuse me, as each heart receives Christ. As each heart declares that Jesus is Lord, his kingdom grows. So in the same way, peace is extolled and given to the earth as it's received by each and one of God's children. This is a peace that comes from being declared right with God due to the Son of God's redeeming work on the cross. The Apostle Paul writes of this great truth in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we have been made right with God or justified by God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He also writes in Romans 8.1 that there's no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what the world needed. Not a ceasefire or a pause in conflicts, but a reconciliation that is final and eternal. We ought to praise God for this wonderful peace. You and I no longer have to fear God's wrath as disobedient children, but we have now the gracious gift of mercy and love for those who have been redeemed through Christ's work. The third consideration is also found in verse 14, but in that last clause. Look at as the angels proclaim the peace, but that peace is among those with whom he, God, is pleased. Peace is for those 
with whom God is pleased. The Christmas carol, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. You recognize that old song. It follows the KJV of Luke 2.14 that reads, Peace and goodwill towards men. However, the ESV, I think, has a better translation. That peace is only for those with whom God is pleased. So what you see in that small clause, as we just many times read through that quickly, or just listen to the, the, you know, the children give the nativity scene, is that there is a qualifier to whom peace is given. There is a qualifier. It is given to those whom God is pleased. It doesn't mean here now, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place here. Uh, The question is then, who is God pleased with? Scripture tells us that God is pleased with this baby in the manger. Twice, God himself says, this is my beloved son, with whom what? I am well pleased. Twice, once at his baptism, and the second time when the transfiguration on the mountain. This word of commendation is given to Jesus. So you and I can already know from Scripture that God is pleased with his Son. But doesn't it also mean that he is pleased with all men? Is not what this passage said, that fear is co- or, or joy has come to all men earlier? And didn't the angel announce that the good news was for all? Well, this is a good question. And it's important for us, so this is a great opportunity for you and I to understand that you and I must interpret Scripture with Scripture. Let's try it again. You and I must interpret Scripture with Scripture. So when we try to understand who is God pleased with and what does all mean, because there's people say, well, all means all, that's all that uh, all ever means all the time. Well, not necessarily. You and I must understand what Scripture is saying. So number one, God is pleased with His Son. But you and I must agree that Scripture also teaches that the whole world stands condemned before a holy God. It's Romans 1. God is just and righteous in judging the world guilty. We must understand that. That's what Scripture says uh, without, with, with clarity. But also redemption and reconciliation, that peace is only found through the work of Jesus Christ. So those three truths then must bring to bear here and help us understand then who is God pleased with? Who is the all that it speaks of? So with those truths in mind, you and I can accept the insight of one Puritan preacher named John Gill, who writes that this good news in the offer of peace to every individual of mankind, not to Herod and his courts, it was uh, who, who, who were troubled by Jesus, nor to the greater part of the Jewish nation, who when he came to them received him not, but rejected his Messiah. So this peace did not come to them. Particular peace did not come to the chief priests, the scribes and the Pharisees, who when they were saw him and saw that this is their heir, said, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. It says, but to all that were waiting for him and were looking for redemption in Israel. Pastor John MacArthur clarifies this even more when he writes concerning verse 14, that this is not a universal declaration of peace towards all of humanity. Rather, this is peace with God is a result of the justification. 
One, being declared not guilty, being declared right with God. You see, God is pleased with his children. Y'all, yes, we need to understand that, yes, we're all created in the image of God. We are all God bearers, but we are not all children of God. It's for those he has chosen for salvation, those whom he's called, those he has justified, and will one day, as promised, he will glorify. The writer of Hebrews informs us, as you look here in the monitor, that without faith, it is impossible to what? Please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Again, we're, not, we're all made in the image of God. We made that clear through the video and through what the, we shared with the sanctity of life. But here's the troubling thought that all of us must come to understand and accept that we are not all children of God. Scripture teaches that first you and I must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead. It says, then you and I will be saved and will have that reconciliation and that condemnation no longer rest upon our heads. In summary, this angelic pronouncement of Jesus' birth is good news. And it brings peace to those, though, who accept Jesus as the Savior, the Messiah, and Lord. You might have caught on to the phrase that the elders use when we preach and teach and pray. That all things work to glory of the Father and for our good. You've heard that phrase before? We say something similar to that many times. This is good news, and this is a great and prime example of why we use this phrase. The Father's plan of redemption, this birth announcement, serves to glorify God and is for our good. Glorify God as he brings peace to those whom he is pleased. Now, that was the work of digging in and understanding, those three considerations. Now you, what you and I have to do is we're not done yet. Because I've given you some information. You've taken some notes. Maybe you've taken some pictures. Maybe you're just sitting there just uh, kind of just uh, dwindling in your head there. But now you and I must take this information and do something with it. You and I must do the hard work of applying these truths of our lives. The scripture is not just for our information. But the scripture and the speaking and the preaching, teaching of scripture is for Transformation. How can the good news within this birth announcement transform our lives? How can I take those three considerations and now how does it help me in my day-to-day life? My relationship with my, my wife and my children, maybe our students and our co-workers and our, and our families and our neighbors. How does this transform our lives? Well, I believe that Luke chapter 2, 8-14 has some special ways that I can do that this morning. There's two. I want to look at two of them very quickly. Number way, here is this. The good news of the birth of Christ drives away our fear. Do not be afraid. Look at how many times Jesus and the angels would say that. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Just as the angels encourages these shepherds to do not be afraid, encourage, Scripture excuse me, encourages you and I today to not be afraid. Even today, it seems like our world is struck with fear. 
politically, economically, cultural, climate change, you name it, we are just a world full of fear. It seems that fear is the engine that drives our, our decision making. It has pushed many to the brink of despair and despondency. Suicide rates are climbing. Drug use is rampant and anxiety is at an all time high. Fear has become the milk of the masses. It's what we drink from. It's what we use to nourish and feed our souls. And the world seems to, to thrive on that. We are inventing new ways to be fearful. And we're putting up all sorts of barriers in order to make us safe. But yet, even in our barriers, we look around and even then we are fearful. Yet sadly, you and I need to understand that we are fearful of the wrong things. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus warned his disciples and those who were listening to him. He said, do not fear those who can kill the body. Don't worry about your body. But he says, uh, uh, but cannot kill the soul. But rather, you are to fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, when you and I read this, we think, oh, that must be speaking of Satan. But I've shared with you and taught you before on this passage that he is not speaking of Satan. He's not speaking of Herod. He's not speaking of some political leader, some cultural, uh, social thing that's moving throughout the country. He is speaking of God himself, the almighty creator, the one who holds our life by a tiny spider web, who at any moment with a click of his finger can cut our life off. That is who do you and I are to fear. The Sermon of the Mount, Jesus taught us not to be worried and anxious about what we're going to eat, drink, or wear, but that God will take care of his children. God is a good father and knows what you and I need, and he knows how to give us good gifts. Like the shepherds in this scene, we need to turn our fear into joy at the announcement of the birth of Christ. A joy that trusts in the providential sovereignty of a benevolent father, who loves and cherishes his children. So if you're fearful this morning, turn to joy. Your fear is fueled by things that are not of God. Trust in his providence. Trust him and give joy in your suffering. Give joy in your goodness, in your riches, in your health. In all things, give thanks. Number two, the good news ushers in peace. You can take that back. Go back to customer service and say, I'd like to return this fear, full refund. And God gives you peace. Now again, this peace is not speaking of a national political peace, though it will and will one day it will do so. But this is a peace that comes as a gift from the Holy Spirit and it bubbles from within and transforms our very being. Scripture gives us several promises concerning this peace. Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, but let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. For I have given you something much wonderful. First, our second Timothy 1.7 says, God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of peace, or excuse me, but of power and of love and in self-control. You see, that peace is powerful enough 
to quell all our fears, dispel any despair or despondency that may be overriding our lives and drive away those anxious thoughts. This peace has a transforming work in three ways. And I know I'm giving you a lot, but this is it. Three ways that God gives us peace. This should transform your life beginning today. This is what I'm claiming that the Holy Spirit wants to work in your life. Number one is peace with God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled. So here's what I want to exhort you today. If you have not yet come to Christ, you need to understand, if you have not yet surrendered to him, if you have not submitted and confessed that Jesus is Lord, the wrath of God abides on you. Your eternity is an absent from him in a place that is very real, in a punishment that is devastating, that you will never escape. I offer you this morning through the scriptures, through God's gifting, is a peace with God. Would you grab it this morning? Today is the day of salvation. Do not deny the knocking on your heart. Would you come to him this morning? A little bit later, I'm going to ask Landon, our elder, to come up so you can pray with him and share with him. If you need to know how you can be true and have that type of peace and knowing that Christ is your Savior, would you come and ask and we will share with you from the Bible how you today can have peace with God. The second way that we have peace is with ourselves. Philippians 4, 6-7 says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your thanksgiving, let your thanksgiving, or with thanksgiving, let your quest be known to God. And when we do this, listen to what it says. And the peace of God, which surpasses all our standing, will guard our hearts and our minds. Let's transform our lives with the anxious and worrying thoughts that we have about the future, about today. Would you turn them over? The most important thing is Jesus is Lord, that he is the Savior of the world. Let that birth announcement transform your fear into joy. Then lastly, it's peace with others. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. He says, put all that away along with all the malice that you hold in your heart. He says instead, be kind to one another, tender heart, and forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you. God's peace, once he comes into your heart, will not only transform yourself, but also your relationship with others. We do that by forgiving, by loving, by putting aside. If, if Christ can disarm all those things, if he can cancel my record of debt against him, then how could you not do likewise? Jesus warned, if you do not forgive as you have been forgiven, he says you won't be forgiven. It shows that your forgiveness or that your profession of faith was in vain, was not real. The good news ushers peace with God, with ourselves, and with others. So who hears this morning, do you need to forgive? Who are you holding anger against? Who do you have malice thoughts about? Is there someone that when you think of him, it rises up in bitterness and resentment? If they're here, do so. Do not leave this door without taking 
He says, if you have anything against a brother, leave your gift at the altar and go take care of it. Don't go through these doors and hold it if it's a brother or sister in Christ here. But even so, if it's with your spouse, with the family, with those you love in your neighborhood, co-worker, let the peace of God rule in your hearts and forgive. I'd like to close with these words. It's here on the monitor, Romans 15, 13. Hopefully you can read it. I notice that's a little bit smaller than normal. It says, may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In believing what? The angel's proclamation that unto you born in the city of David is the Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord, that will turn all things into joy and a peace so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And in that hope should be a sharing of the Gospels. Others see that hope and say, what's going on? Well, let me tell you about the birth announcement of a baby born 2,000 years ago. Their head bowed and their head closed as the worship team comes up. And I will ask Landon, if you would please, after the service, just come and if you have a, something that you need to share, you need a prayer, you need advice, counsel, would you please come? I'll be there in the back. As you leave, you can also share with them. You may want to write it on a note. Maybe you want it private. Uh, just write it on one of those, uh, those welcome cards. You can hand it to one of us. Put it in the donation box and we can get a hold of you later. You can email us. You can do all sorts of different ways to communicate. But what I want to see is that you and I, that our lives are transformed by the birth announcement of a humble little baby born in a manger because it brings joy and peace. Father, I pray that we would respond the way in which you've called us to. We are all here not by accident, but this is an ordained moment to hear this word, to hear it, to interpret, to apply it to our lives. Father, let us not neglect that work. And Father, may you be glorified and for our good. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.